And now it's time for the podcast, Sustainable Dad. Joining us today on Sustainable Dad is a professor who potentially has a job that will be everybody's envy. He gets the opportunity to go out on boats and look at coral reefs as a full-time profession. Good morning, Dr. David Suggett. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Yes, how are you? Mate, amazing. Um, You spend a lot of time on coral reefs, and I think that's really significant because in Australia we have one of the greatest coral reefs on Earth, the Great Barrier Reef. Um, The problem is, is that if it's being influenced by climate change, and as a result we're seeing bleaching and a deterioration of that, it really does raise a really significant issue because climate change is a global thing, but this is a a local reef specific to Australia, there's got to be some complex geopolitical relationships that these kind of things unlock for you. Uh, well, absolutely. What, what a question to start on. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, just to give a little bit of context into, into the answer to this question, I've been really fortunate to work um, in many countries all over the world. Um, and actually, m- most of my work on coral reefs started by um, working with local communities that you know lived, worked, and breathed off of the reef, quite literally, um, and you know their survival depends on healthy reefs. It's as simple as that. But unfortunately, in many of these these countries, that they, they actually have incredibly low carbon emissions. They have very, very good um, uh, policies in terms of minimising impacts on their systems, and yet to all of the threats that the developing and big sort of polluting nations are putting into the atmosphere. So to give you an example, you know, we've been working in the Seychelles for for the last 10 years or so. Um, They have some fantastic, probably some of the best um, policies for for carbon emissions, for what we call blue carbon um, and sustainability. And yet they've witnessed um, degradation of their reefs through climate change um, over the last few years, just as many nations worldwide have. So they've had to really ask some hard questions very quickly. What else can we do to preserve our reefs? They're at the mercy of everyone else um, worldwide and how they operate. So they've started some really um, innovative and unique um, practices now for the past few years of trying to accelerate reef recovery. And to bring this back to Australia, um, you know, five years ago, Australia re- really wasn't in a position where, where we needed to do this. The reefs were being managed. Sure, they were being impacted locally, but we hadn't really experienced the catastrophic deteriorations that many of these other reefs worldwide had. Fast forward to 2016, 2017, where we experienced back-to-back mass coral bleaching, killed almost 50% of all our corals on the Great Barrier Reef. You know, all of a sudden, Australia was thrust into asking these same hard questions. What else can we do to preserve this, this, what is clearly a very fragile ecosystem? Well, I mean, you raise a pretty good point on this because, like, like you said, uh, uh, Seychelles, um, I also think Turks of Caicos has an incredible, mm-hmm. the Maldives, Australia. But these aren't geopolitical juggernauts do you know like Mm -hmm. it's not like you're going to see the Maldives stand up at the UN and say listen you guys are ruining our reefs and if you Mm -hmm. don't stop we're going to have to invade that's never Mm -hmm. going to happen yeah I mean how do do you what do you band together as an initiative how do you how do you make a presence on a world stage to cause global change 
Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. And it's all about consensus. Absolutely. You know, um, uh, you know, many voices can become very loud. Mm. And so it's very much a situation now where we need to make sure we have a common um, voice and viewpoint in terms of the actions that need to be taken. And I think that's one of the challenges we have, not just in Australia, but worldwide, is sort of trying to position where do we stand on practices to adapt and repair our ecosystems versus obviously the emphasis on reducing our emissions and, and really cutting the core of the problem. We actually need a bit of both, but, but we're sort of still discussing what that balance should be to give us the best um, power to safeguard, uh, safeguard our ecosystems going forward. Mm. Now, you know, I, I kind of think this this is going to get more and more complex because we see mm-hmm. even in recent history um, the significant fires in the Brazilian rainforests. Um, now, that's, you know, often called the lungs of the world. Mm-hmm. And you have other nations standing up and saying, do you, do you need us to step in and help? Do you want us to be a part of this? But you have a mm-hmm. local leader saying, no, 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 we've got this all mm-hmm. under control. Yeah. Is that it's one of those situations where you go, as a nation, do you step into firefight even though the local nation doesn't want you there? Like, but it's got a global ram- ramification. I almost feel like the stuff with the reefs, which is obviously mm-hmm. where a significant um, uh, breeding location for a lot of the uh, sea's life exists, mm-hmm. is in these reefs. I mean, are we going to see other countries step in and say, listen, you're not, you don't have a good management plan and mm-hmm. we're going to have to step in to help you. It's it's like almost a reverse war. Like we, we want to make you better so we can be better. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it would be a real shame if, if Australia was exposed itself to that, you know, to be totally frank. Yeah. In, in many senses, Australia should be leading mm. um, the charge on this. Um, and, you know, we, we're in a position um, geopolitically where we can make some real affirmative change. We just have to make sure we're making the right decisions. And, of course, you know, understandably, it's a challenging balance between short-term economic security and long-term ecological sustainability. Those, those are not easy um, aspects to reconcile. Um, so um, I suppose the key, the key issue here is, um, and I guess what's been incredibly powerful recently has been very much grassroots bottom-up, um, again, sort of banding together the loud voice to really ask for change. You know, mm. we, we are, um, you know, we vote in our politicians and consequently we want to make sure that it's not a, a one-off. We vote our politicians in and then they have the, 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 um, the decision-making capability, we need to make sure we in, help inform that. And, of course, that's our, our um, position as scientists to make sure we collect the evidence to provide the government to make the best informed decisions. I mean, do you struggle when you watch TV and you see a, 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 a journalist or someone uh, who's hosting a show suddenly go, well, you know, we haven't assessed all the evidence on climate change and there are varying different opinions? Does that frustrate you when you hear stuff like that it, it is frustrating because it's the, the sort of denialism is is uh, again um it, it's it's a stance that you know many people still take and understandably so we've had this discussion internally nationally where the easiest decision 
to take um, when you're faced with a really challenging problem is denial and, and do nothing. You know, it's, it's, mm. the, it's the easiest stance to take. It, it's brave um, and takes a, a lot of, um, you know, real um, brave decision-making to, to put your neck out and say, you know what, I do believe this is happening. How are we going to face it? And, you know, we're looking at ecological catastrophes in the face. We've seen it this year. We've seen it in previous years on, on the reef. Um, and we've certainly now entered an era of real ecological grief, both amongst the research community, but amongst our younger generation, ecological anxiety is becoming a really um, recognized um, and diagnosed condition. And we, we really have to make sure that we're addressing this front and center. Well, I mean, you touch on the fact that you've seen ecological ca- catastrophes on the reef, and you've mentioned mm-hmm. those those back to back years of bleaching. Can you can you explain what a healthy reef looks like, and what you're yeah. starting to see as a result of climate change on those reefs? Yeah, that's a really important question because it is understanding again sort of the context and what's changed because. Um, you know, I'm going to sort of answer the question in reverse in a sense, is that if you visit the reef now, the Great Barrier Reef, you know, every reef site you go to has still got some spectacular areas, okay? Yeah. But other areas on the same reef will look completely destroyed. So no single or very few single reefs have been annihilated. But what we see now is the ecosystem is immensely patchy. And what this means is that, of course, patchiness, Um, makes it incredibly hard for the system to recover. The Great Barrier Reef thrives on being this sort of interconnected beast where one reef um, depends on the health of its neighbouring reef. So if we start um, affecting any one reef too much, you have a domino effect. Mm. So it's really sort of understanding that condition. If we go back, you know, just 10 years ago, then many of these reefs in their entirety were were in fantastic condition. So... This is actually important from a management perspective because it means if you if you go to any one reef and you want to try and manage it, you know, we know that there are still areas that are in fantastic condition that we cannot just safeguard but use to help rehabilitate some of the poorer areas. Okay. Um, so do you do that by creating like a coral reef Band-Aid to put it over the hurt parts? In, in a sense, yeah. I mean, it's the, the analogy I give... Uh, sometimes is when I think of what we're doing to the reef now is, is we, we're um, confronting the reef with a terminal illness. Um, if we don't solve the, the actual fun, fundamental uh, system, systemic problem, um, it, it will die. So, of course, we're trying to tackle that by making sure we reduce our emissions as quickly as possible and as heavily as possible. In the meantime, we don't want our, um, our patient to suffer. We, you know, we don't want to the point at which the, the patient gives up and we no longer have the capacity to, to save the patient, even if we could address emissions. So the point being is, although it's a Band-Aid in a sense, it's an incredibly important Band-Aid to make sure we have a reef in, into the future to, um, to safeguard. Now, one of the things that you were talking about is re- reducing blue, blue carbon. What's blue carbon? <clears throat> Excuse me. So... Um, blue carbon is actually something we want to maximise. So oh, blue sorry. carbon is uh, components of our marine ecosystem that are incredibly important at taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and burying it. So mangroves and seagrass, the vegetated components of our ecosystems, are key players in this. All of the phytoplankton, all of the little cells that are microscopic in the oceans that we don't see 
um, are incredibly important for taking this out of our ecosystem, ultimately burying it on the sea floor. So maximizing our blue carbon, so in other words, taking our carbon dioxide out the atmosphere with marine productivity and burying it, and we want to fast track that to try and scrub as much CO2 out the atmosphere as we can. Of course, that's still not addressing the fundamental problem. We need to stop putting carbon dioxide in in the first place. Right. So it's really two two pronged. You need someone else somewhere reducing carbon on Earth, right. and, mm-hmm. and at the same time, you've got to. This seems like a very challenging job. Find microscopic organisms in the ocean, which is a fairly big region. <laughs> And grow as many of them as possible. Well, the, the microbes definitely are. You know, they're all they're there. They're, you know, you look at any any sort of milliliter of seawater, you've got millions in there. So okay. it's so they're they're not they're not rare for sure. But the the key aspect is really the large vegetated systems, so the mangroves and the seagrass, because that's something we can actively um, fast track. Because we've we've actually impacted these ecosystems immensely through. Um, largely through urban development, we've removed a lot of our seagrass beds and uh, mangroves. But also, funnily enough, um, that climate change to heat waves has also caused massive dieback of these ecosystems. So restoring these vegetated systems is an incredibly important part of trying to fast track our, not just our ecological recovery, but aiding the, the, the balance of CO2 um, emissions and drawdown from the atmosphere. Okay, so for a person to do this, I think that, you know, like, and I'm thinking seagrass right now, mm-hmm. is that turf farmers can make a living out of growing turf. Uh-huh. Is, is it possible for a seagrass farmer to make a living out of growing seagrass? Do you know, that's a really, really good question, and I don't know the answer to it. But what I will say is that um, many communities, um, not so much on the Great Barrier Reef, but but if you look through the developing nations in the, throughout the tropical belt, yeah. um, are turning to farming macroalgae in um, coastal systems. And this plays two roles. First of all, you know, aids carbon drawdown, but more so that the, the macroalgae is increasingly recognised to have many, many properties of value that are currently unexplored. And this ranges from novel bioplastics that are easily um, degradable to many pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical products. Um, So uh, a a classic example is um, agar. Um, It's 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 sort of a generic term for groups of macroalgae that produce um, stabilizing compounds that we, we have in many of our foods. Right. Okay, and I think we saw this with young Henrys who have got a like a an algae mm-hmm. farm going on, eating all the CO two that's produced from the beer. That, that's absolutely right. So that's something that's um, been pioneering from a from a partner lab in our institute here. So uh, that, that's right. If you can start scaling how you use microalgae or macroalgae for you know everyday purposes, so we're really repurposing um, our um, supply and demand chain. And if you can repurpose that towards algae, then not only do we get great products, but we do it in a, in a means that we can draw more CO2 out of the atmosphere. So this is one of those things where it, it's the next couple of steps where you're going to start to make money. Because I, I, I feel like, like, let's say that you establish these great uh, seagrass beds and then you encourage all the phytoplankton to come back, which changes the ecology of your marine life. And as a result, you start to see coral reefs healing. And then that brings back the fish, 
which is mm-hmm. where traditional industries go, oh, well, we can fish now. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like what, what's happened with the algae is if you can trace the steps back a few more steps to seagrass and we can find a viable commercial means for seagrass, people will want to grow it in droves. Yeah, well, that's right. It's about, and we've we've actually done this for a long period of time, um, working again in developing nations more so, um, of developing alternative income streams. You know, traditionally, um, the pressure has been to to exploit uh, marine systems and for extractive purposes, and really, it's about trying to find more sustainable um, uses of the of the ecosystem that still provide everyone with benefits. The, the little caveat here, it's not that little actually, it's a large caveat, is we have to make sure as well that. This, you know, there's, there's many um, sort of uh, operations in reef ecosystems that, that have huge cultural heritage. And we have to make sure we also preserve that cultural heritage, which does to some extent um, rely on extractive and exploitative um, purposes. But again, this, this needs to be managed in a more sustainable way. And, and really, this just this comes down to the fact that we have a lot of people on Earth. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um David, you, you head out on the boat. You find yourself at mm-hmm. a reef in crisis. Like you say, it's got a terminal illness. What is your first thing that you're trying to do when you're trying to stabilise and save a reef? Well, you know, there's, there's two things. Is I guess first of all, sort of trying to understand the current status of the reef relative to its longer-term trajectory. And, and again, it's easy to visit a reef and see a few good bits and say, you know what, it, it looks it looks in fairly decent shape. You know, we, we have to look at the bigger picture and really put things in context. The other really important part, to be honest, and this has really become a bit of a, I call it my academic midlife crisis in a sense, <laughs> where, um, you know, it's, it's about reframing how we ask the, the research questions that we want to solve. And, you know, traditionally, we've, we've been asking questions that we as scientists have felt have been important. What's really, really critical and what's been transforming my approach um, for, for quite a few years now has been talking with those that, that matter. And I know that sounds kind of obvious, but again, to put it into context, when I visit a reef, the very first thing I do is I go and talk to people that have either a direct or an indirect dependency on it. And I ask them, what do you need? What, what questions do you need us to ask and answer? What, what matters to you most about the health of this system and how it needs to be managed, preserved or grown? And in a sense, I still do the same research, but I just ask, um, ask it from a very different perspective. Well, I mean, that's the significance of... Um personal connection to a story, right? Is that mm-hmm. if you can understand the cultural impact of a reef yeah. and the narrative that is coming from the culture that uses that reef and has four centuries, mm-hmm. and then you can make that connection through science, then people will get behind it, right? If, if they can't figure out a way to cling to the story that you're telling, mm-hmm. then they're not going to care. But if you're saying, no, it actually sits at the heartbeat of this culture and this is what we're trying to do, then suddenly you've got an entire community that will rally to what you're trying to do. Well, I think, I think that's right. And I, I guess in the past, you know, research is, is built on the foundations of, of objectivity and neutrality. But what we have to remember is that we, you know, to really ask the questions that matter, we have to become emotionally connected in a sense to what we do. And that means talking to people on the ground, we have to ask some very hard questions about how the system's changing and the real impacts at play. So it's really changing the landscape of research in that respect. You like it's like a I don't know it's like a cultural ethnic scientist that you are you know like you 
It's like, well, we're not just looking at the science. We're looking at the science as it relates to, a, you know, an ethnic people group or a cultural, you know, or its cultural significance as well. And that plays a part in what we're doing scientifically. I mean, that's a, that's kind of like a holistic approach. I, I love how you said that. Absolutely. A holistic approach is exactly right because, you know, we could, we could answer a scientific question and, and feel that we have the answer. But if it's not practicable from, you know, the, the, what we call the stakeholders, those that live and work on the reef, then, then really we're not answering the fundamental problem at play. We can't action that problem and solution. So, you know, that's why it's so important to reorientate how we ask our, our questions. And when, you know, we first came, when I first moved to Australia, this was a really important part of trying to understand how research here was, was um, playing out. You know, we were used to going to, to countries and, and talking to um, subsistence fishermen. You know, that, that typically is the main impact on many developing reef systems. When you come to Oz, the main, the main um, stakeholders, is, aside from um, the indigenous communities and the large cultural heritage, is the, is the massive tourism industry, which actually accounts for about 90% of what we call the asset value of the Great Barrier Reef. So really listening to the tourist industry, tourism industry, and, and understanding how they operate, understanding what their questions and concerns were, and, and actually starting to work with them as a partnership um, that was absolutely critical. It's, it, it must be hard, though, sometimes trying to find a harmony between commerce and environment. Yeah, well, it, exactly. I mean, there's always some element of what you feel might be exploitative, but, but it's really important that the, the operators, if you, if you, you know, take the time to really chat and listen, they, all of them care. All of them, you know, want to make sure they're, they're sustainable. They, they care deeply about um, tourists visiting and only leaving with knowledge and only leaving, you know, they say the only thing you leave is footprints in a sense. Mm. Um, you have very, very limited impact. So, so the operators um, strive to be as sustainable as possible. We work with them to be more sustainable and importantly, give more back. And the way in which we're doing that is working alongside the government agencies um, to enable the tour operators um, to, to have much greater role in what we call stewardship. You know, they live, work and breathe at certain reef sites. They really need to take more ownership in ensuring the quality of those reef sites is sustained. And all of them want to do it. They just need to be empowered to do it with the right tools. I have a, a cousin who um, for a long time used to work for an oil industry and he used to be able to geologically survey land and say, okay, that's where you should drill and you'll get mm -hmm. oil. Is it possible to do a similar thing with coral reefs where you can assess the landscape of an ocean and say, you know what, we could plant a reef there and there's mm -hmm. every chance it's going to be viable? Yeah, well, absolutely. This, this is exactly what we're doing is we're entering the era of what, what I'm calling smart decision making, where, you know, we, we can't rehabilitate everything. You know, we have to make choices and we have to make some difficult choices. But we can do that in an incredibly informed way. Um, there's two key ways we're looking at this. The first is we're asking from a tourism point of view is what, what, are, what, what are the highest value reefs? Which are the ones we need to focus on? to ensure that we can maximize the, the tourism dollar um, and do that in a sustainable way. And, and what's interesting is only a very small proportion, I think it's about 3% of all of the reefs on the Great Barrier Reef are actually used for tourism. So, you know, we can make some, some smart choices here. The second smart choices we can make from an ecological perspective is understanding which ones are the most 
vulnerable to future impacts, mm. which ones are also what we call the source reefs. There's actually only a few reefs on the Great Barrier Reef that, that act as hubs and supply larvae to many other reefs because of the way the currents work. So again, we can use this information to say which ones are the priority reefs to focus our time, energy and resources on in the short term. And then as a result of that, then you can kind of rebuild reefs potentially. Yeah, ideally, yeah. I mean, rebuild or rehabilitate. The, the terminologies, we're, you know, we're still sort of dancing around that space. We, <laughs> when we use the word restore, for example, we have to be careful. We're not giving the impression we, we are returning the ecosystem to, to an old state because I don't think any of us believe we can confidently do that while the climate is still changing. Yeah. But what we can do is certainly um, start to rebuild biomass in terms of coral and fish and a reef structure back into the system and certainly use that to safeguard some of the key species. Well, then what you would be doing is reconciling reefs. Is that like reconciliation, right, is not returning things to the way they were because history has broken it and we've learnt from that is what we have to do now is reconcile it to a new tomorrow where it's going to be beneficial for all people moving forward and as a result, you put infrastructure in place, right? You know, like that's the nature of reconciliation. Absolutely. You can't go back in time, but what we can is go to a preferred tomorrow, and this is the way we're going to reconcile to a preferred tomorrow. That's right, and we can do that both in terms of, you know, ecological adaptation and social adaptation, so the way we, we use how we've um, rehabilitated the system. But as I said, what we have to be really mindful of is we don't get caught in the trap of just adapting. Yep. We, we have to be very conscious that we have the power to reduce our emissions. Um, we, we just need to be empowered to do it at a governance level. I love that. That's, uh, that's some good advice. So mm-hmm. um, as a guy who spends a lot of time on reefs and looking at mm-hmm. coral and growing coral and figuring out how to do this better, what's, what's your recommendation to an everyday punter who doesn't spend a whole bunch of time on the reef? Where do, where do I make an impact so your life gets easier? Well, definitely don't give up on the reef. You know, it is, as I said, every reef site you go to is still spectacular in parts, and it needs our help. It needs us to keep going, um, ensuring that the livelihoods and the economy stay in place, um, and, and, of course, that we support it. And, and also um, using the opportunity to voice our concerns um, that climate change is happening and that we're simply not doing enough quick enough to to address it. Those are the, really the key points. The other key point, perhaps, is that, you know there's a lot of projects starting to establish claiming that they're saving the reef through restoration. Uh, definitely look at those with um, with with care. Um, there's there's um, you know it's really really important that we we ground many of these activities in adaptation with hard science, and we're only just starting to do this. We need to understand what works best when and where. So definitely look at look at some of these adaptation plans with, with caution, but hopefully with optimism. Love that. David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Of course, if you want to find out more information, you can head to the uh, UTS website um, or you can head over to Coral Nurture Program, which is coralnurtureprogram.org. Is that right, mate? That's absolutely right, yeah, and thanks very much. Really appreciate the the chance to chat and, um, you know, please come and visit us out on the reef as soon as you can. Well, there you have it. What a fascinating work that uh, David does on the reef. Not restoring, reconciling. That's it.
Anyway, I love this chat. Um, I thought it was really fascinating. And I hope you got a lot out of it too. Um, This is the last episode in the Sustainable Dad podcast series. I just, I really feel in my heart that it's time to say it's done. And that's kind of hard. But the reality is there's so much more information out there about it and people are really screaming about ways that we can be more ecologically sustainable. So please, team, as I wrap this thing up and say farewell, think about where your resources come from. Reuse, reclaim, recycle. Even think about legacy and heirloom stuff. What is something that you can use for a lifetime and and repair and reuse? Team, I hope this has been helpful. I hope it's been insightful. And thanks. Of course, I'll be back with other podcasts at some stages. I can't help but make content. But I hope this was beneficial. I'll see you later. 